Welcome to another episode of Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Kirsten Holder, and today we're talking with Skylar St. Eves, Aquatic Education and R3 Fishing Coordinator at the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. Welcome, Skylar. Thanks for having me. Yes, we're so excited to have you here, and I'll start with some introductions as well. Skylar has been with the Wildlife Agency for more than eight years now, and he currently oversees statewide fishing clinics, website fishing content, fishing programs, outdoor education events, shooting sports and archery events, and then just any other special event that he can handle on top of all of that. Skyler is originally from Seattle, Washington, but now calls Oklahoma his home. He is dad to two kids and one for a child, and as you might imagine, loves taking them fishing, hunting, and camping. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today talking about outdoor and nature activities that we can enjoy in Oklahoma. So first of all, can you tell us why you currently enjoy your position at the Wildlife Conservation? Yeah, so... You know, this position, as far as being a statewide fishing coordinator, really, you know, allows me the opportunity to take something that is, you know, deeply personal and, you know, a, a passion of mine and, and help spread that with our user and our public and those who are thinking about fishing for the first time or maybe been doing it for a little while but need, you know, some guidance that didn't have that hands-on mentoring from a parent or grandparent, friend, you know, they're looking to be involved in the outdoors and a sport that we really love. And, you know, this position really gives me an opportunity to, to help spread that knowledge and kind of foster that culture of fishing in Oklahoma. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a dream, especially if that it has been kind of a lifelong passion of yours to share that with other people. Seems like a good position to be in. So tell us more about some of your upcoming close to home fishing events. So our close to home fishing events typically take place in the late spring and early summer. So we're kind of through at this point, our close to home events for the year. Um, we have a specialty clinic coming up with a partnership that we have with uh, OG&E that allows us the opportunity to hold some fishing clinics on closed portions of OG&E water bodies um, that are not currently available to the public. So it allows us to get some people in and have some unique fishing opportunities. Um, what we will have coming up here in the fall is uh, trout fishing clinics, and those will be statewide clinics at our uh, 10 trout designated fishing areas. Um, so that's kind of something to look forward to as we get into the fall. Uh, typically we come out of late summer, it's still pretty hot and things like that. So we try not to have clinics because we don't want to get a bunch of people out there when it's 105 degrees outside. So wait for those, those cool downs to come, but definitely always something to be on the lookout on our Go Outdoors Oklahoma landing page, gooutdoorsoklahoma.com or through the Go Outdoors Oklahoma app. And you can always go to our events page and see any upcoming fishing events that we have on the schedule and those close to home opportunities usually occur between March and June each year. Gotcha. And you kind of mentioned um, all levels of, of skills for clinics or other kind of events. So if I am an unskilled fisher, are there classes I should take first or meanwhile? And is there any kind of licensing I need to fish in Oklahoma's ponds and lakes? And from what I've read, there are 46 ponds and lakes that are open to fishing, fishing in our area. 
Yeah, so those are the close to home areas. Um, those are special partnerships that we have with municipalities in the urban areas of the state. Most of them are located within the Oklahoma City metro, but we do have some in the each region of the state as well as Tulsa. Um, you know, with those, depending on what city they're in, uh, if you're, you know, under the age of 16, you're exempt from a fishing license for a state fishing license as well as city permits and things like that. Once you get older than that, you are required to have a state fishing license as well as adhere to any uh, city or lake permits that um, may be in effect from those municipalities. But when we do fishing clinics, so if we you know host a fishing clinic, participants in those, regardless of age, are exempt from fishing licenses during those events. So um, they're exempt from both if there's a city permit as well as our state fishing license during those events. Um, as far as being an unskilled angler, a new angler, all of our family fishing clinics um, and fishing clinic events that are listed on our events page, by and large, are for all skill levels and all ages. Um, we have equipment that we can tailor to each individual's needs. So there's not really a whole lot of, you know, background you need before you come to one of our in-person clinics. I feel like that takes the pressure off a lot of parents who are interested in bringing their kids, but maybe don't feel as well equipped to be showing them how to fish. <laughs> so these clinics kind of solve that problem for the whole family. Yeah. Yes. And what age would you recommend um, bringing kids to those clinics clinics, teaching them to fish, um, and kind of what tips do you have for teaching kids to fish along the way? You know, for age requirements, um, it, you know, it's really up to kind of the kid, you know, uh, most of what we do is a hands-on activity and it requires a little bit of, uh, you know, patience and paying attention and things like that. So that's really more on the parent of knowing whether or not, you know, your, your child can, can take some hands-on instruction or, you know, complete a hands-on activity that's anywhere from, you know, 30 to 90 minutes. Um, so typically, you know, 10 starts to be a pretty good age, but I've had people at clinics as young as three and as old as, you know, mid nineties. So we, we run the entire spectrum of people who show up for clinics. Um, as far as tips for, you know, getting out and teaching your kid, uh, you know, wildlifedepartment.com, our fishing resources page, we have uh, lots of learn to fish um, videos and articles, how to's, family fishing tips. Um, they can kind of point you in the right direction, what you're looking to purchase when you go out, uh, how you should rig up your rod that first time to take a kid fishing. Typically, you're using, you know, a bobber and some type of bait, whether it be a artificial uh, you know, manufactured dough bait or live bait, like a worm or a minnow, that, that's typically the easiest way to get kids engaged in fishing because it typically lends some of the higher success rates as far as catching goes. Yeah, there's nothing worse than taking a kid out there and then just not catching anything all day. <laughs> Practice and patience, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> So um, as an angler yourself, I'd love to know what your favorite type of fish is, um, what type of fish you like to fish for and why. So for me personally, I really look forward to, you know, the summer months, July, August, September. Um, most people are out recreating on lakes across the state, whether they're fishing, boating, jet skiing, swimming, you know, any of the water activities of the summer. Um, and I kind of take my fishing efforts to our clear water streams on the eastern and southern part of the state. 
And I really enjoy targeting smallmouth bass. Um, that's kind of my bread and butter at that time of year for going and wet wading clear water streams across the state and targeting smallmouth bass. Very nice. Is smallmouth bass, is that a common fish to see throughout the state or is that really just found in that southeast region? Uh, it's really from our northeast region down to our southeast. We have two native strains of smallmouth, uh, our Neosho strain and our Washita strain smallmouth, and they are native fish. So they they have been wild and inhabit those water bodies. Um, we do stock a northern strain uh, smallmouth bass, typically referred to as a Tennessee strain, and those are stocked in or previously have been stocked in reservoirs across the state. Um, so you can find smallmouth bass in quite a few reservoirs across the state um, for to catch in lakes. And those fish typically obtain much greater sizes, are native strains. A big fish is going to be pushing three pounds um, and under, whereas the smallmouth that we stock in our lakes, or we don't stock those smallmouth anymore, but when we were stocking them, they now naturally reproduce. And those fish can obtain weights up to about eight pounds. Wow, that's great. What other types of fish do you stock throughout the state? Um, what are some common breeds that we might see when we're out fishing? Our, uh, our primary stocking efforts across the state uh, today are um, our temperate bass, so a hybrid striped bass, which is taking um, striped bass that have been stocked historically in Oklahoma waters that are not a native fish and crossing them with a white bass, which are a native fish, and it produces uh, a hybrid striped bass, which is able to obtain weights that are greater than a white bass. A white bass is range is usually up to about four pounds whereas a striped bass can grow all the way up to 40 pounds. Um, so with hybrid striped bass, you get a lot of fish that typically average four plus pounds with the opportunity to grow fish, you know, all the way up to 20 pounds. Um, that's a pretty prevalently stocked fish in water bodies across the state. We also stock Florida strain largemouth bass. Um, so in Oklahoma, our native northern strain largemouth bass pretty much is native to every pond, creek, river, lake in the state. Um, they were a statewide fish. Their Florida strain uh, relative uh, is like the name implies a Florida genetic bass that, you know, South Florida or all of Florida, South Georgia, Southeastern Alabama, um, that was kind of their native range. And uh, their genetics allow these fish to grow up to massive sizes. The Northern strain largemouth bass while there are anomalies, they typically top out somewhere around eight pounds, whereas a Florida strain largemouth bass can top out over 20 pounds. So we introduce Florida strain genetics in our southern lakes, lakes that are south of I-40. We have stocked them in some lakes north of I-40, but they are um, pretty weather intolerant of cold weather. So we try to keep them in bodies of water that are more of a temperate climate, and that's typically south of I-40. And what ends up happening is you get your northern strain largemouth bass to eventually nat naturally cross with Florida strain, producing a, a, what we call an F1 hybrid. And those fish, like a hybrid striped bass, then take on the growth potential of one of the parent species, while also taking on the survival tactics of the native species to better allow them to survive in our bodies of water. So those are kind of our two big stocking efforts that we have, but we also stock hybrid sunfish, which is a cross between a green sunfish and a, a bluegill. Um, we stock sogeye, 
which is taking the native sauger and crossing it with a northern species that uh, similar to the Florida strain, but the opposite, instead of being cold intolerant, they are warm water intolerant. So we cross them with a sauger who lives natively in Oklahoma that has more of that warm water tolerance. So you get a sauger that a maximum attainable weight or size on those is about 18 to 20 inches, but a walleye can grow all the way up into 30 plus inches producing fish in the you know 10 plus pound range. So Sogai bring in again a happy medium of a hybridized fish that kind of give you the best of both worlds, taking fish that are in the same um, family and then crossing them to get the best traits of both parents for angling opportunities. Then we also stock channel catfish um, pretty widely across the state, especially in smaller reservoirs, city lakes. Um, and that's, that's the majority of our stocking that we do. Uh, we purchase rainbow trout every winter um, to stock in seasonal trout fisheries. And we also have two year round trout fisheries that receive stockings. We don't produce those fish in house like we do all of the other fish. We actually purchase those. They come in from out of state and then they're stocking those bodies of water. But those are our um, kind of our stocking efforts that we have currently. Very good, man. That is an exact science, which is probably an understatement with all that is going on at wildlife conservation. <laughs> Why is it important, in your opinion, to get outdoors as a family and experience some of these things, fishing, but also other outdoor sports? You know, just being outdoors is such a ingrained part of our DNA as people um, with more urbanization and uh, people living in cities, you know, we, we always kind of have this native calling to the outdoors. Some of us live it in our daily lives still, um, and others, you know, they really kind of respond, you know, very strongly and positively when they do take those opportunities, whether it be fishing or hunting or camping or hiking or biking, um, just kind of reconnecting with the natural world. Uh, that's where all of our stuff comes from. Uh, you know, we produce it out of natural things. So when we put ourselves back into those natural environments, it's very, has a very calming effect. And there's scientific studies that show people who spend time, you know, in the actual outdoors, um, it does a lot for reducing anxiety, stress levels. Um, so, you know, it's important, to, you know, a family activity where you can kind of get away in most cases, even if you live in a big metro like Oklahoma City, you know, Arcadia has campgrounds. You don't have to go very far to just go spend a weekend at the lake. And while you may hear the buzzing of I-35 in the background, you, you're still, you know, you're still surrounded by nature and the water and trails and things like that. That, you know, it's just it's an important opportunity for family bonding, um, for kids to, to have that experience outdoor, especially in a ever-growing technological world uh, where it seems like we're more and more connected, you know, through our screens that having kids get those, you know, opportunities each year um, to get outside and, and really kind of, you know, recalibrate, you know, themselves as they're growing. It's helps us, you know, to, it's a cyclical thing. So it, it always is going to pay dividends in the end of having that respect for nature and the outdoors. And, you know, it really helps with decision-making for things that you might not even think about that are non-hunting or related that are important to everybody's daily lives. That's a good point. Um, ironically, my husband and I were just talking about the other day, trying to instill 
opportunities, I guess, for our kids to feel confident and capable in their own skills. And they can't do that unless they practice them. And how much better can they practice them by learning these outdoor things? I mean, even like you mentioned, going to Arcadia and learning how to build a fire, having to navigate a trail themselves or, you know, different things that nature provides us. Yeah, most most outdoor activities, fishing in particular, you know, they are a confidence building sport. Um, it's something as an individual that you can do. There's no clock. There's no referee. There's no, you know, the bounds are basically your own imagination and, and your own creativity and, you know, having confidence building skills and things that, you know, are part of the physical world go a long ways towards other aspects of people's lives when it comes to their job or their school or their friendships, um, just being able to, to build some personal confidence through accomplishment. Um, that's kind of what we always you preach for fishing because that, that is what that sport is for the ma vast majority of people who do not do it for a living. Hmm. That's a great point. I really appreciate you bringing that up. It's much more than just going and catching fish. It <laughs> has a deeper meaning and I really like driving that home. As the weather cools off, as you kind of mentioned, you know, we're coming to the end of summer, early fall, we're looking toward winter, and we still want to be outdoors in the winter. Do you have any tips for getting outside when the weather is cold, including accommodations we might need to make as far as planning, clothing, gear, that kind of thing? Always, uh, always have enough base layers, for sure. Um, you know, the nice thing about being cold, you can fix the cold, you can't fix being hot. So there's always a remedy um, for the cold weather. But as we move into our fall and winter months of Oklahoma, you know, all the way through December into January before we really start seeing some, you know, pretty frigid temperatures that might be seen to most who might want to do like tent camping or back of your vehicle camping, where it might start to dip down below what that comfort range is. But typically by the time we hit the end of October, all through November and December, you're going to get pretty mild temperatures, which is great to get out and be able to camp. We've knocked down a lot of the bugs and some of the other outdoor, some poison plants, things that, uh, you know, can go a long ways to uh, ruining somebody's outdoor experience. You start to, you get away from that in the fall and the winter months. And so really good opportunity to get out there and you know, go pitch a tent or if you have a, you know, little travel trailer, or, you know, however you enjoy the outdoors fall and, and uh, winter. And then again, in the early spring in Oklahoma are really your times to get out there and do it recreationally where everybody in the family is probably going to have something that they you know, can enjoy while they're out there. And it's going to be a little bit more comfortable, but definitely base layers, you know, you're kind of, your your three things that you always need when you go out in the woods are going to be some type of bug spray. Um, if, if it's just a kind of, uh, pretty well put together, uh, maintained camping area, that might just be your basic off spray. Uh, if you're kind of getting a little bit more primitive and going to maybe one of our properties that are all primitive camping, or you, you know, go to another place that's primitive camping, you might look into something like treating your clothes with the permethrin, um, that's going to go, go a long ways, um, and then water, always, you can never bring enough water. It's always good to have an extra case of water in the vehicle and some gallon jugs. Uh, people forget when it gets colder, uh, you can also get dehydrated um, very easily in cold weather. And that can lead to serious issues just like it does in the summertime. So 
even though the weather is cooler and you don't feel like you're sweating or losing fluids, very important to always have water on you. And then just, you know, having clothes, having, you know, and having a plan, you know, what, it, what would you do? Are you in an area with bad cell reception? You know, what do you do if you have a vehicle breakdown or you have a physical emergency or something like that? Just always knowing where you're at and what your, what your survival plans might be in the case of inclement weather or some type of emergency that you, you know, when it, if for, if it happens, you know, you're prepared. So those are, those are the big things when you get outside at any time of year, but especially as we get into colder temperatures and you might be faced with some inclement weather of some kind that pops up, whether it be winter weather or, you know, severe weather that you always have a plan. Those are really good tips, especially the one about dehydration, because you're right, we think about that all throughout the summer, but not necessarily in the winter time. So that is super helpful. Your TikTok and Twitter feeds are so enormously popular, so much so that when I told my staff we were having this podcast today, they said, check out their Twitter and TikTok feeds. We love watching the video of the alligator who spent 13 hours moving her hatchlings, all which was caught on camera, which seemed incredible in itself, um, which of course, you know, watching that as a parent especially brings to mind safety um, and attention to respect for nature when we're planning our next outing or camping trip. What are some of the more dangerous animals that call Oklahoma home and how can we enjoy the outdoors while still being cautious and respectful to these animals? Well, the thing about the natural world, wildlife, fish, um, you know, they all pose dangers in one way or another. Um, some can be life-threatening, others can just be a modern inconvenient, um, you know, Obviously, bugs can carry diseases. There's stinging insects. There's, you know, there's venomous reptiles. There's, uh, you know, we have some of our bigger mammals like black bears, um, the occasional mountain lion that's out there, coyotes, bobcats, um, white-tailed deer, a male during rut, a bull elk during rut. These all pose, um, you know, what could be human wildlife conflict. So it's just always best practice, no matter where you are. Um, no matter what you're doing, that you always keep your distance from animals. Um, in the fall, especially with our antlered animals that are going through their breeding cycle, they are hopped up on testosterone and they aren't thinking as clearly as they typically are, which is avoid people at all costs. So it, it brings them more into our environment as they're seeking uh, to go through their breeding patterns. Um, so, you know, there, we have lots of cool things to look at in Oklahoma. You know, you got everything from pronghorned alligators. Uh, we're one of the most ecologically diverse states in the entire country. Um, we have, you know, a dozen plus different ecoregions that have their own myriad of animal and fish species. And just like anything out there, it's, um, you know, you just got to always show respect, always show caution, always treat fish and wildlife with respect. And, um, you know, if you're going to be in an area where maybe there is something that could potentially pose a greater threat, like a black bear when you go camping, you know, being bear aware, having uh, having your plan where you don't keep your food out at night, um, you know, things like that. And you can always go to wildlifedepartment.com and search through our field guide and look at, you know, the different animal species and we'll have best kind of tips for, you know, how you might deal with some of those you know, more what could potentially be dangerous animals for people to interact with. And um, those are just, that's just part of being outside, you know. 
there's the city poses its own problems without sidewalks and buses and and their own dangers so just just think of it as uh when you're in the woods or you're in the wild animals and fish would much prefer not to be around us um and so in most instances you know just being aware of your surroundings is going to be good enough to keep you from you know getting into any problems just eyes open being aware that's a great point too the dangers that we see every day living in a metro area um, might be equivalent to what if we lived out in the country and we just dealt with this every day it might not seem like such a big deal do you mind if I ask you have you ever had a close call with nature um, where your safety was in jeopardy not personally um I've had experiences with moving bodies of water that you know that in itself poses lots of challenges um where I've I've had the opportunity to be in trouble, um, but haven't personally come across anything that was, you know, I haven't had that mountain lion chasing me on a bike or black bear running into camp experience. Um, but you know, if you go down to the Wichita's during this time of year, go hiking, you might run into, you know, be aware of the bushes. If you hear rattling, you hear bugling, and the bull elk's coming through, you know, it's always a good time to just always keep never turn your back on animals. Um, you know, always just back up, make yourself big. Um, you know, typically a quick shout will move them away. But yeah, me personally, I've been fortunate enough to this point that I haven't come face to face with a copperhead sticking my hand down into a brush pile or bear coming into camp. Uh, probably the closest that I've ever come was uh, being at Blue River wet wading one summer. And I had a cotton mouth about four or five feet upstream of me that was a full-size mature snake swimming cross current with me in the water um he went on his way i went on mine now that's probably the closest that i've ever would consider myself in somewhat of a dangerous situation but good on you to stay aware and to see it and like you said back away <laughs> uh, so let's hope it stays that way as far as safety is concerned you have some information on your site about being a citizen scientist um, and helping document the nature around you to help scientists in the field. Can you tell us more about this program and why it's important? Yeah, so citizen science, um, you know, there's a lot of different avenues uh, for people who don't work professionally or volunteer within, you know, the scientific community, the biology community, conservation community. Um, but who are still love the outdoors. It's still a huge part of their life. They like contributing um, in any way that they can. You know, through our site, uh, wildlifedepartment.com, uh, you, can, you can go through our, our watchable wildlife section and you can find areas where you can report sightings um, uh, of whooping cranes. That's always a big one uh, that we get during migratory season. Black bear sightings, mountain lion sightings, Texas horned lizard sightings, and then anything else that we have listed as being, you know, a species of concern or threatened, uh, we you can report directly to the wildlife department. There's also great apps out there like iNaturalist that are, you know, run in kind of joint between California Science Academy and National Geographic, uh, where it's an app that you can pull up. It, it's great to not only help report, but it's also great for um, if there's something out there that you don't know what it is, that you can take a photo and put it on there and get the answer. Uh, so that's kind of what citizen science is, is that, you know, we work for the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife. We're an agency of 350 people, um, of which 
only, you know, a couple hundred are actual people in the field who are doing some type of biological work. Um, the rest are administrators, communication, education, game wardens. Um, and so our actual fisheries and wildlife people who are in the field, they are spread out on public land, which is less than 3% of the entire state's lands. So that means 97% of the state is in the hands of the people of Oklahoma. What better place to find things, you know, on that wide swath of land? So um, people who care about hunting or fishing or care about conservation or just have an interest in it. There's lots of different avenues for you to be involved and be helpful because um, we can't be everywhere at once. And, you know, a lot of these things can turn into bigger decision making uh, when animals are discovered or uh, insects are discovered that, you know, may have concern that can hold up a build of a neighborhood. Um, so protecting those species, if we don't know, Plans go ahead, roads get built, projects get done, um, and you might decimate habitat that might be the last remaining habitat for a particular species. Mm -hmm. So that's where citizen science can really play a role into actual real world decision making well beyond a fish and game agency. That's a great point. And it actually leads me really well into my next question. Um, we saw the studies on bats in Oklahoma over the summer. Are there any other current wildlife trends your agency is studying to protect? Uh, we always have a pretty good research going on with our black bear population in the state um, because it is a growing population, an expanding population. Uh, bears were pretty much eradicated from this part of the country uh, during westward movement in the pioneer days and settlements out west. Um, they were hunted to, you know, extinction in these areas. And so over the course of decades, as state fish and game agencies and U.S. Fish and Wildlife and other concerned um, entities have tried to reintroduce animals back into their native habitat, black bears were stalked were reintroduced back into the Ozarks in um, Arkansas back, I believe it was in the 70s. And mm -hmm. since since then, they've naturally reproduced and um, they've had protection where you couldn't hunt them for several years. So they were able to go through their life cycles. And now we see a pretty, pretty robust black bear population throughout the Ozarks and now into uh, most of Eastern Oklahoma. Um, most people remember the bear incident in Norman uh, last year. And so bears have pushed pretty far westward, especially those young male bears that are looking to establish their own territory and find a breeding mate. Um, you know, these are solitary creatures for the most part, same with mountain lions, and you get a lot of traversing. So that's always something that uh, we pay pretty close attention to. We do our bear tagging studies every year where we monitor the same collared bears as well as we put collars on new bears and we're able to get um, data on how they're reproducing, how they're living, um, and whether or not there's ever going to, you know, become a need for there to be some type of human intervention with a particular bear in a certain area. So that's always at top of mind for our agency. Um, Texas horned lizards are another species that uh, get quite a bit of monitoring. Um, prairie chickens, another uh, species of concern um, that's had its habitat pretty decimated um, through farmlands and urban development. And so prairie chickens have always been a, a pretty good research um, study for the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife and 
and things that we do, but we monitor, you know, just about every species in the state. Our fisheries and wildlife um, people, they're concerned about our game species. So the species that people actively target through hunting or fishing. And then we also have an aquatic nuisance um, section of our agency and they monitor, uh, you know, aquatic nuisance species, didymo, zebra mussels, uh, different types of aquatic plants. Um, so they monitor those and do research projects on that. We have our wildlife diversity team that their focus is everything non-game, which is a much broader scope than what we deal with with our just game species or sport fish species. So at any given time in the agency, there's always some type of research project ongoing, either with habitat or with um, some type of species. We're very appreciative of that because sometimes, like you said, when development happens, urban development, farm, it's sometimes the last thing we think about. So we're glad that this agency is making sure that our state does stay ecologically diverse and um, that we can enjoy nature for years and years to come with our kids and on and on. So really appreciate all you do. Thank you so much, Skylar, for sharing your knowledge and your passion with us today. It's been a pleasure getting to know you, the work that you do, and for everyone listening, you can learn more about fishing programs, events, and being a citizen scientist at www.wildlifedepartment.com. Thanks so much and join us next time on Raising OKC Kids. Okay.